You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. This year marks 75 years since the 228 massacre, and this week we continue our discussion on the topic. 228 refers to February 28, 1947, which could be argued is a misnomer because tensions leading up to the massacre of tens of thousands of people had been building for quite some time before February 28th, ever since the Chinese nationalists, the Kuomintang, had fled from China to Taiwan in 1945. Some Taiwanese dissidents have used the term March Massacre instead of 228, since the massacres that happened were mostly in March of 1947. Last week, we talked about the lasting impact of 228. Under the subsequent authoritarian rule of the Chang regime, there was 38 years of martial law and the White Terror era. Anyone could be disappeared, executed, or worse, for just saying or doing the wrong thing, or for what was seemingly wrong in the eyes of authorities. The people of Taiwan were horrified and terrified. Generations dared not speak of 228. If you haven't already listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to listen to it first to understand the trauma that 228 has inflicted on generations of Taiwanese. My guests on this week's episode will talk about some of the ways they have helped 228 survivors and their relatives to start to heal their trauma. I'm welcoming back Dr. Michi Fu and Dr. Tsuan Kuo to talk about the work they did with the Transitional Justice Commission's Caring Projects that were set up specifically to help 228 survivors and their relatives. Three sites were set up for the Caring Projects and Tsuan and Michi were at the Taichung site up until February 28, 2021. Please note that the comments and experiences they share are limited to the work that they did through the Caring Project in Taichung and their personal opinions. They are not representing the Transitional Justice Commission, which as you'll hear in the interview, has a much broader scope with five main objectives. The Transitional Justice Commission was set up in 2018 to investigate the actions taken by the Kuomintang between the 15th of August 1945 and the 6th of November 1992. This includes 228, the Martial Law Era, and White Terror Era. Special thanks to Michi for her help in assembling all the guests for this episode and the previous one, both dedicated to discussing the topic of 228. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. The Taiwan Elite Alliance was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese-American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people of Taiwan. The Taiwanese United Fund is an arts and culture foundation that celebrates the cultural heritages of Taiwanese Americans. Established in 1986, the foundation's mission is to facilitate cultural exchange between the Taiwanese American community and other American cultural communities, hoping to enrich and expand our cultural experiences. To learn more about TUF, visit their website, www.tufusa.org. Now, without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. Thank you, Felicia. Good to be back. 
Thank you. I'd like to start by sharing what Taiwan's Transitional Justice Commission was set up to do. According to Taiwan's Laws and Regulations Database, the Transitional Justice Commission would implement five items. One, providing for public access to political archival records. Two, removing authoritarian symbols and preserving sites where injustices were committed. Three, redressing judicial wrongs, restoring historical truth, and promoting social reconciliation. Four, settling and utilizing ill-gotten party assets. And five, handling other matters pertaining to transitional justice. Can you tell me, how did both of you get involved with the Transitional Justice Commission? This is Suan. Um, I'm in Taiwan. And then about three years ago, uh, the government, the Transitional Justice Committee was reorganized. And then they added a few social work and then uh, more of a social science and humanitarian scholars and professionals into the committee. And then so many of these scholars and humanitarian rights or social workers thought that um, because of a lot of victims, they are getting very, very old. And throughout their lives, after they were um, like they got out of the jail, um, but many of them had very little friends and their relatives even were very scared of uh, having any connection with them. So um, seeing them getting very old and not trusting the government much, thus that they don't use any of the social uh, service services, healthcare or long-term care services. So um, the commissioners started to propose that there should be many uh, some of the humanitarians or uh, specific projects dedicating to helping them live well, um, especially probably live uh, well at the end of their very end of life. So that's how we got um, involved in it. And then um, they first selected three sites to start doing this caring projects. Um, for lack of a better word, we call it caring projects. And the caring project involved uh, maybe like weekly uh, telephone reinsurance, uh, home visits, and making sure that their health care, their health problems are uh, taken care, and especially a lot of like maybe long-term care needs um, can be connected to services like home care or adult care, and uh, maybe like um, a lot of assistive devices and things like that. Um, it's not easy to convince any of them to. Um, um, start thinking about using these services. So um, the government first selected three sites, Taipei, Taichung City, which is the central uh, part of Taiwan, and then Kaohsiung, the south part of Taiwan. So um, they, and then they allowed three sites to have its own creativity and uh, objectives to decide to, to what, uh, what they want to do uh, to care for these victims and their families. And more importantly, not only the victims themselves, uh, we call them first generation, but the caring project also extend to second and third generations because a lot of traumas actually last and then carry throughout uh, their family. So that's basically what we did, we, how we got involved two years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you very much. And my involvement with matters like this started in the States. I started doing program evaluation at the Museum of Tolerance, and a mm -hmm. lot of their work um, obviously centers around the Holocaust, but also related world events um, throughout history. 
And then I also had colleagues that were deeply impacted by the recent war um, in Armenia that um, triggered a lot of intergenerational uh, ripple effects based on the Armenian genocide. So I was fortunate enough to be able to go back and forth since spending sabbatical in Taiwan. Um, so when Suan uh, realized that I'd be back for the winter holidays, it just seems like a perfect timing to be able to serve as a consultant. So I was really um, excited to be able to participate as a consultant. So I want to thank Suan for the opportunity to give back oh, to the It was community. a pleasure. Yeah, having you involved was uh, so uh, helpful because uh, Michi is a well-known psychologist in the United States and she is very bicultural. And so uh, we all loved her uh, to get involved. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's wonderful to know that you're so well qualified uh, to do this. And I'm sure that the first hurdle was probably just even getting people to accept these social services and the help, right? Right, right. Um, uh, since a lot of victims are, uh, I think all of the uh, clients that we helped, um, they were men. And um, so, you know, having that that generation of uh, male uh, macho and you know uh, we have to stay tough especially after all this uh, lifetime ex you know experiences traumas um, some of them don't even want help from their wives or family members so um, people can imagine how hard it is for outsiders in especially in in, in our this Asian country uh, to get in and then want to get involved so um, uh, like our social workers when we want to visit them there are many times we knock at the door ring the doorbell and then they won't open the door Wow you have a lot of persistence yeah we end up having um, to talk to a lot of their acquaintance in the past or anyone who has ever done any life history uh, with them um, who had prior trust or any kind of acquaintance with them and so we have to find maybe like a third party this kind of person first to um, help introduce and then say good words about us and then finally convince them to even come out to meet with us and then um, after like maybe three months, four months, we propose this life review group uh, for them to come weekly. Um, it also took a long time to convince them. And then they were really afraid that what what are you going to find? You know, what are you going to talk about? And then some of them even ask uh, uh, set limits like, uh, oh, I would not say anything about this, that. Um, you can only ask uh, something about this or that. So they're very, very protective of themselves. Maybe to enlighten the audience, there is a reason for this because there's a strong distrust of the government and they were persecuted and their families and people that knew them were also afraid. They were ostracized. Not only were they persecuted for any political beliefs or expression when they came out, they probably didn't want to have anything to do with them. Yeah, and it's not um, that after they come out, um, they were free. Uh, many of them were monitored for decades still and um, uh, constant oppressed. And then uh, uh, um, and many of their family members, you know, if they have small children, um, their children have difficult time at schools. Um, if their um, family or relatives are getting uh, jobs, uh, many of the jobs are disrupted after uh, hearing that they have connection with uh, these survivors, 
Um, so it's really, really hard to find, uh, to form even any uh, human connections or social support network. Once you were able to get them to participate, what were some of the things that you did with them in the program? Okay, the program lasted eight weeks. Um, we wanted to be longer, actually, but then this was the uh, the time available uh, for us to do this. And then so we met weekly, and then overall there were two purposes. One was to uh, lead them and then have uh, them review their lives, and then can be positive, can be negative, sort of like having a life record of draw down or written down. So uh, have them review their lives and then talk about the ups and downs. And then the second was throughout talking about up and downs, uh, they can pick events that they wanted to reminisce and then they wanted to maybe recover or try to maybe uh, make some sense out of their narration. Um, also throughout this process, because of their eight weeks, uh, in, involving 10 people, um, we are also trying to, to maybe help them build some social networks because some of them may know each other or may have heard their names, but because they're really old now and sometimes they're having hard time getting out of their house. So, uh, because of this gather, gathering, they're able to, uh, review their lives and then maybe help each other and then rebuilt a little bit of social networks. So uh, after the events, they can still uh, have some contacts. Oh, that's wonderful. So did you see that happening because they were with some people who are you could consider their peers and you had a shared experience? Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when they talk about maybe um, when uh, many of them are second generations as well. So uh, second generations talk about their fathers. Uh, some of them were killed, actually, um, and then some of them were put in jail. And then so uh, there's these two differences. You know, some of the second generation will try to ask why, you know, why do they kill my father without having, you know, proper uh, justice or trial. And then some of them were saying that, you know, even though my father weren't killed, they put in prison for, you know, decades. And after they came out, it's still the same question of why did, did I have to do this? So um, many of them were trying to solve the puzzles themselves and then uh, but to a certain extent uh, we cannot ask why anymore because you know it happened but then uh, the the question is to the the, the work is to help them uh, think ahead or try to process it you know uh, maybe we should not talk about why we maybe should we can talk about how did that affected us and then how can we move on and I know it's not easy and that's when Michi came in place because of her psychology background and then she can help us process that kind of why you know why did it happen to me you know um, uh, I want us to make some sense out of this so otherwise I cannot move on so um, I really appreciate Michi's help in guiding them throughout this process as well. Michi, can you talk about what kind of things you would do or were there some kind of types of therapy that you would do with these people so that they could make sense of this or learn how to deal with it better? Sure. First off, I have to applaud the courage of all that were involved 
not just the folks that were willing to advocate for this to happen, but also for each participant that was willing to show up. Mm -hmm. I think every single time it was difficult. And one of them was even kidding around um, saying that she needed to kind of um, calm herself down when she arrived in the morning. She um, shared a beverage with everyone just so that there could be goodwill in the group. So that was a symbol, I think, of them coming together. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that happens when you have these injustices that happen on a mass scale and there's silence about it is there could be a lot of shame and loss of dignity. So when people are able to get together and hear the commonalities, just automatically there ought to be healing because you can now know that you are not alone. And then we had them do a series of exercises. So Suan and her social workers are really great about using creative means to help people express themselves. So we had um, art therapy-like materials, um, but I cannot say I was conducting therapy because I'm not licensed in Taiwan. So we had group workshops that processed some of the trauma and um, Suan was also really great about letting me show on the overhead. So it felt like a mini workshop where first I could share a model in psychology. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. as an example, I could say there is something that happens when you have a trauma like called PTSD and we can remain there for a very long time. But there's also this other alternative path called post-traumatic growth. And so we talked about the different layers that could be impacted. So um, it was partially workshop and then partially trying to integrate creative means so that they wouldn't be forced to share verbally, but they could share uh, the impact that this had on their lives and their family members. And we saw some really moving artwork that I believe um, helped them to release without actually losing face. So I think mm -hmm. it was also kind of culturally congruent that we were able to do that. Well, that's very interesting. So another form of expression to express your emotions. Yeah. I remember one morning I showed up with Su um, to Suan. I said, I think we should use Play-Doh today. And she says, we got it covered. They ha they already brought clay. Her and her team are really oh, wow. So, you know, we were trying to figure out based on like last week, what can we modify this week so that we can keep on building and encouraging mm -hmm. that momentum of sharing? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Suan, you were about to say something. No, it, it's. Uh, it, I was going to say this uh, when Michi introduced the PTSD growth model, mm -hmm. and there are five elements. And then, but to mm -hmm. me, some one thing that really like touched me and stick in my mind was one of the one of the five elements was to uh, appreciate life, or to see something good in your life. And to me, it was a little shocking that even though they, I know all of them try so hard to survive and, and to like really um, make their family successful and all that. And we can already imagine how extra hard it was for these families. And then um, when we asked uh, them about their personal strength there, what's good about them or, you know, they couldn't think of anything. They uh, maybe it had something to do with what Michi said. You know, they feel shame. They feel not dignified, and then so mm -hmm. it's almost like they shouldn't be thinking about good thing in their life. You know, it's something so luxury that they cannot comprehend. Um, but to me, their life every single day to survive and to be able to stand up and then go to work was already so inspirational, but they couldn't see that themselves. I did want to say, I remember we had asked them, we put uh, blank canvases in front of them, and then we gave them some tissue paper to tear up just to express themselves. And that first activity, it was a little bit heartbreaking to watch fully mature people 
wondering if they had anything to contribute, they were actually very reluctant. And I think that's when, you know, so-and-so wise, every, every time she'd watch the facial reactions and then we'd go off to the side and confer, okay, maybe we need to add this, maybe we need to adjust that. Eventually, they started opening up more and more to the point where they were so expressive. We were like, okay, people need to calm down now. <laughs> Everyone's going to get a chance to share. Um, but that is actually not uncommon. People internalize impress uh, oppressive stereotypes about themselves. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. can be very difficult to reverse that after decades of feeling ostracized by society. So I was most impressed with the resilience that they displayed. And I think towards the end, we started to see that they started to embrace that more too as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. One of the men who uh, probably closed himself, you know, it's almost like he built a concrete wall around him and then mm -hmm. he felt like he's not deserving anything good. Um, we're so pleased to see that after, uh, at the end of the event, um, he had never gone abroad, even though he economically he was able to, but he just felt mm -hmm. that he was not good enough to travel, to enjoy life and things like that. So it was mm -hmm. interesting, our young social workers at the end, and he said, well, you know, maybe I should really consider getting out of my shell and then do something, maybe do something uh, different. And I asked him, like, what do you want to do? And then he said, well, I kind of like Japan. I don't know if it's possible to visit Japan. And I said, of course it's possible. And then he said, well, isn't it very, very expensive? So I asked the young social workers, now travel, Taiwan travel all the time. I asked the young yeah. people there, I said, what do you think? You know, how much does it cost to travel to Japan? And then the young people say a figure. And this man just said, really? I can't believe it. Oh my gosh, then I could easily afford a long time ago. <laughs> and then I said, yeah, of course. So please go, you know, uh, uh, maybe in spring, Sakura, when the cherry blossoms very pretty, please uh, mm -hmm. take your wife to go yeah. and then, you know, um, send us a picture. So he said, okay, okay, I'm now going to work really hard about this. So yeah, <laughs> it was wonderful. so, I, I almost uh, cry when I hear that. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. And I yeah. wonder, did you have a chance to ask these people the same question? Is there something good about uh, in your life or about you? Were you able to ask them this question towards the end and see if they were able to answer that? Yeah, some of them um, had maybe concrete things to do. And then others maybe uh, try to look at inside, you know, themselves, and then they found out how resilient or um, how much they're, um, a lot of their, uh, I guess they are very proud of their children for having the same kind of justice um, characteristics and things like that. So, um, and then uh, we also welcome them to express that to their children because we found out a lot of the uh, children, they have uh, misunderstood their parents, thinking that their parents may be selfish because uh, like a couple of them said that, you know, our fathers had this uh, dream to, uh, to better the society, to make the society better, but then um, look at what he did. You know, he, he may be good to the society, but he, you know, because of what he did really let us suffer, so we cannot forgive them, you know. So some of them had really bad relationship there with their parents. So um, so when we uh, found out that the older people, they're very proud of their children, and then they, they're very proud of what their family turned out, we encouraged them to talk to their 
their children and their family and maybe make a record and then do draw something or write something down so their children can see that you know from his side he really really appreciate his uh, descendants and, and relatives and families. Michi, I'm curious to know, um, since you've actually worked with different communities and people from different countries that have dealt with trauma, do you see any commonalities between the different groups that you've worked with? Yeah, there tends to be a shared trauma when there's a lack of recognition. And we can see this probably most clearly with the Armenian population. They're great at advocating here in Los Angeles. Um, because I think they have the largest Armenian population in the world. So one of the things that they continually talk about there is how if you continue to deny that this event occurred to our people, you are essentially saying that we don't matter. And if you are saying that this whole community doesn't matter, then you're essentially saying eugenics is okay and we can do without this whole community. group of folks here. So when you feel that expendable, it's hard for you to then feel hopeful, perhaps, that you might have a good future. So there's a lot of trickle-down effects that happen in the individual. You might question uh, not just your affiliation with the group, but with your nuclear family as well. And so Mm -hmm. there can be a lot of anger and, and silence if families are not able to talk openly. I think that's why I really admire the um, the folks that have established the Museum of Tolerance. They've done a really great job of role modeling how to educate others so that we try not to repeat history again. Mm-hmm. And they also are great allies for other groups because they know what happens. Then there are still Holocaust deniers today. And so they are actively combating it. It's not like this happens in isolation or by mistake. Usually when there's a mass denial, there are benefits to not being able to recognize. Usually the more privileged group gets to continue to oppress, even though that event might actually be discreetly over, there continue Mm -hmm. to be lingering effects. So Mm -hmm. it can still be very harmful. But um, fortunately, I think we're starting to see that there's, um, there's this push, and this was hopefully a good beginning You know, I think Taiwan has started to establish the memorials and things like that or removing certain symbols that might be hurtful to folks. I remember when they went up, it was like a family pilgrimage to go and try and learn just a little bit about it, even though it was still difficult to talk about. We went to a memorial site in Taizong. Just for my own family alone, it was really important before my father passed away just to acknowledge that this had happened. And I... I personally try and bring folks, like I do a uh, educational tour. So I'll bring foreigners to the museum to educate them and then ask them to continue. Um, I, sorry, I bring psychologists from the States over to Taiwan. And I do this intentionally, exposing them so that they know this could be part of a Taiwanese American's history. And you might need to know that you're working with someone who either has a lack of awareness or they can be very aware and maybe they're very angry about this. And now for a short break. Talking Taiwan is a listener-supported podcast, and we want to take a moment to thank listeners like you for your generous contributions. You make our work possible. 
As the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast and a Golden Crane Award winner, we are dedicated to bringing you the stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. And if you haven't already, you can make a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Talking Taiwan. What did each of you learn? Or did you learn something personally from your involvement with the Transitional Justice Commission? Or something about 228? I can say that not everyone in my family was excited that I was participating in this project. They actually, um, when I was little, they called me troublemaker because I would press every single button. I'd, I'd <laughs> always be curious about what a door led to. Yeah. Um, and they were basically saying, stop doing that. Just leave this alone. There's a reason why we don't talk about this. You know, I think for my mother's family, there was a lot of mystery when people started disappearing. And there wasn't a whole mm. lot of discussion because she lived in an area where there were consequences for speaking out. Um, so when I participated in this, there were a lot of questions of why are you doing this? Right. And so on. Yeah, for me, um, something from very simple to more of a um, inspiration. Uh, the simple part is. Um, for me, I, I became to treasure life every moment more because many of them talk about their loved one disappear in just seconds and never return. You know, um, I think under now after that we went through COVID and everything. So I think um, I learned a lot about to treasure every single moment and then not shy about saying you know love and expressing uh, feeling to family members, and then. Um, being a third generation of a 22A survivor, uh, at first I thought uh, it was impossible. This endeavor, the whole thing that the Transitional Justice Committee is doing is so gigantic. And not only gigantic, they are facing a lot of objections you know, and criticism. So for me, you know, I thought, oh, why bother? Like Mitchie said, you know, I'm not going to make any difference. <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs> by just uh, helping 10 people for two months, you know. Uh, but I was so glad I did it, you know, even if it's maybe like just 0.1% of uh, the whole thing or even smaller than that, um, I feel like I won't have regrets in the future. Because if I, if I, you know, think back, and if I get older, and I think, oh, you know, I had a chance to help those people maybe have a little bit better life with their family member with the society with themselves. Um, you know, I had a chance to do that. And I didn't do that. I think I'm going to not uh, forgive myself, I guess. Yeah. And then obviously from these people, you know, learning about their braveness. And uh, I remember one romantic story out of this uh, session because uh, many of the daughters uh, of the survivors, you know, having met someone and having someone who are willing to marry them, I think it's a, a hurdle. Uh, I can speak it from my personal experience. My mother too, you know, was a, uh, my mother is a second generation and uh, she is very, very smart and graduated first in their class. But um, a lot of uh, uh, people, when they heard that she is a survivor of a political prisoner, you know, they, they like shy away. So I remember growing old, uh, I didn't have the answer, but growing old, uh, my father always said that, you know, uh, I'm the brave one who can marry, who, who married her, you know, and I didn't understand the reason, but throughout this life, he would session, say that. 
Yeah, yeah. And I saw, I don't know, Michi, if you remember that uh, old lady, um, she, you know, she had her husband by her all the time and then, you know, um, really huddle her and appreciate her. And then uh, we asked him, I was aren't you afraid, Mary, a political prisoner daughter, you know, and he said, no, you know, I really admire her. And I even uh I think he even influenced his own family, his sisters and his parents, and then really to get involved and then um, really to, to learn about the truth and everything. So, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a really, you know, trooper. He's, I really admire them. And then, so to see them like, you know, having a, a really good uh, life and then that was really romantic and nice. <laughs> That's so wonderful to hear some happy stories like that. Yeah. Michi, did I, you want to say something? I love that really out of this project, we could see resilience and love. Um, mm -hmm. Working backwards to your earlier question, Felicia, like what did you yes. learn? Just being affiliated with this project, I learned about the actual events, you know, and I, I think that mm -hmm. was also a huge shock to me because I've heard about it because my brother-in-law's family lives right next to the river where a lot of bodies disappeared. Oh. And so my brother-in-law's family is great about letting me know how they were personally affected. But when Suan had invited me to just be a consultant, I wanted to do my homework. So I took a bunch of books with me um, in English and journal articles while I was in quarantine. It was actually a very distressing time to, yeah. to be locked in there with all of these documents mm. and not yeah. have a lot of outlets for trying to make sense of it. So I'm grateful to all the scholars. Uh, my partner at the time was also great about sharing information about the transitional justice stuff that had happened in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So really sitting with that was eye-opening and it also gave me a deeper appreciation for how resilient Taiwan is as a country. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, I know that a part of what the Transitional Justice Commission was supposed to do was to open up some records that were previously not made public. So do you know anything about what has been revealed in those records? I don't read Chinese, so I can't tell you what the documents actually contain, but I know that yeah. databases and reports have been created. And they were trying to mm -hmm. figure out, well, how many people were executed without even a fair trial? And also how many trials um, directly involved the commander in chief at the time. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. some of that has been made available. And I know that separately the survivors and their family members are supposed to have access to their individual cases. Mm -hmm. But not being able to read Chinese, I don't know what yeah. the actual documents contain. So I don't know yeah, if you can comment. The progress is slow because I think it takes um, uh, some time to apply and then um, to really get the extract the documents, but then it's ongoing. I guess uh, there's a good and bad part, I guess. Um, I think uh, for documents who had a lot of records, uh, one family found out that uh, uh, all these, uh, there, there was a close friend who kept reporting them, and that's why their father oh. was killed and or prosecuted. Oh, that's so, so distressing. Um, it, after decades, they realized it was this close friend. Um, so it was on the news, and then so it was a little, you know, it, it, it started a little uh, talk in a, in a society. 
However, um, there are other families um, after they saw their documents, even though there are very little uh, things left, they really appreciate because they they saw handwriting of their fathers, you know, mm. and they really what's inside was not really important or readable or, you know, mm -hmm, not making mm -hmm. sense anymore, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. they had their, uh, their father's handwriting, you know, so they really see it as a, as a, as a treasure. So mm -hmm. yeah, I guess, um, can be very different and then, uh, it's ongoing, but, um, I really admire the government willing to do that because, um, like since 1947, 48, it's been so many years, and then uh, we thought, as a Taiwanese growing up, I thought it was when we never had a chance to really see the truth. Or for many mm -hmm. families, they are going to die without an answer for generations. Mm -hmm. But now I think uh, it's yeah, it, it takes some courage, and obviously a lot of uh, also people criticize about this. But I guess little by little, I think we are going to learn from each other. And I'm very hopeful. I think it's moving forward uh, towards a, a good direction. Oh, thank you for sharing that. It's very interesting. What is revealed, how that uh, mean different things for different people. How would you evaluate what the Transitional Justice Commission has achieved? Has it achieved its goals? I think for some of the goals, uh, for instance, like removing symbols of authoritarianism, I think that um, it's fairly accomplished, I think, um, because like Michi said, for some of the figures in Asia, I think we, we like to really put like our, our leaders, you know, statues everywhere. So um, obviously it was hard to take down, you know, many of the symbol, symbols, um, but um, I think it really healed some families, you know, uh, uh, these people, you know, longer, no longer be inspired or worshiped and, and things like that. So mm -hmm. maybe they're having some healing out of it. Um, the, uh, the the classified documents because it's been so long sealed, um, so the 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 progress is slow, um, and even like I said, uh, some of the documents were gone still. You know, like for instance, my family, my grandfather had a lot of properties in Taipei, and then mm -hmm. when he was captured, all these properties were confiscated. But there's no documents about property uh, documents or any or any documents that he owned these properties. Yeah. So like my mother's family, they always said that they cannot get any any of that justice back. Uh, and uh, um, you know they seem to come to term with this this even they 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 tried, but then they seem to come to term with this. You know, so I guess uh, for some of judges, um, I think the government or the commission is trying really hard to speed up. For instance, mm -hmm. like they they release quite a few of studies and reports, and then try to let as many people know as possible. And they're very creative sometimes uh, putting the stories into maybe like uh, postcards and pictures and narratives and comics and uh, some even um, souvenirs and having some scripts of important uh, uh, documents and things like that. So I think uh, uh, they're doing a good job on that. So oh, I guess so that's you're saying what I that the government, about. the government's created some materials like that to share about different stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By oh, different forms too, um, yes. that can be accepted to older generation or younger mm -hmm. generations. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, younger generation they have maybe like comic books, you know, and then the older <laughs> generation is more formal and serious. 
I think the second objective of removing the symbols of authoritarianism is probably the most concrete one that we can point to, mm-hmm. but there's still even debate about that. I yeah. went to the park where all of the statues have been corralled. Yes, the Chiang Kai-shek statues. It's a gorgeous landscape and it's it's kind of a, a strange sensation to be there with so many of those symbols. But in the news, they're constantly talking about the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall. Mm-hmm. and what mm-hmm. we should call it and whether mm-hmm. we should rename it and such. So I think there's still some debate um, and hopefully it can remain healthy and, and respectful discussion because I think this is difficult for folks that um, may not see those symbols as being oppressive. Um, so there's right. there's still a lot of uh, conflict around some mm-hmm. of these. There are a number of opinions on this. I'll include links on our website to articles that state some of the findings of the Transitional Justice Commission and assess the commission's accomplishments. I think a good thing is to make it a long-term solution because the Transitional Justice Commission is uh, 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 technically temporary. You know, it has to be renewed every year in the legislature. So I think... uh, uh, the, some of the legislators they are proposing that uh, it's going they are going to move this commission into a formal commission called human rights commission uh, so it will cover all the uh, different types of human rights and being politically mm-hmm. oppressed is obviously one so we are moving towards that so uh, this part can have a long-term uh, solution and plus um, I think a good thing about the, all of this is like a constant debate of the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial, but also at the same time, um, there are museums be, being built, you know, um, a very good museums. And I cannot say that it's uh, as, as good as uh, the Museum of Tolerance, but then uh, maybe like a little version of, of that. And then... Uh, one of the tourist sites, uh, very famous tourist sites, uh, good for snorkeling and uh, uh, water, you know, underwater scenes, uh, called Green Island uh, in Taiwan. Uh, that ha- that is the part that uh, hosted a lot of pre- political prisoners uh, during Tutu Aid or after the White uh, White Terror. So the Green Island has a big landscape of uh, the original prisoners has uh, prisons have has been turned into a museum. So I had a friend who uh, did a document film there about how uh, sort of try to relieve how it was uh, uh, the, for the prisoners. So I think there are many sites for people to see. And um, right. even like, yeah. if you, you know, if there are tourists who come to Taiwan, I think besides the beautiful scenes, I think these things are worth uh, looking as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And for listeners who don't know, back in the day, Green Island was known to be the place where all the political prisoners were sent to serve out their sentence. Michi, did you want to say something? I did want to mention, I have been to the Museum of Tolerance and respect them very much, but there's something very powerful about going to the Human Rights Museum in Jingmei. Mm-hmm. You actually okay. you actually get to go into the cells and you get to see uh, some of the folks mm-hmm. that left behind impressions of their time there. You mm-hmm. actually get to walk into uh, the place where they apparently have these trials. So mm-hmm. it, it's a very powerful experience. Um, mm-hmm. For some reason, and I did that in the research of all this, but 
I've never been able to go to Green Island. Every time I book, there's some sort of a typhoon or something. And so it just hasn't been my time. But I think it was because when I finally got to serve as consultant, one of the survivors had said she organizes an annual tour. And so she had invited me. So I, I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm not supposed to go there alone. Maybe I'm supposed to go with her lens. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's something very powerful about that one, as well as the one in uh, 228 Peace Park. That mm-hmm. one made my students cry. Mm-hmm. They, they oh, wow. needed to debrief for an hour to really process what they saw. I wonder if you had any thoughts on how we could compare what the Transitional Justice Commission has done in Taiwan with what other countries have done with transitional justice, like in South Africa or Germany. Wow, that's a loaded <laughs> question. Because I, I want to... Yeah. I think Taiwan really deserves an applause for just taking these initial steps. Um, but I know that there have been folks in South Africa where they're sitting across from someone who murdered their family member. And there's really a lot that goes into a meeting like that. Um, and their media was very involved in trying to create a safe space, but ha- highlighting how they are trying to move beyond. So um, I just remember hearing how powerful it was to have people really sitting face to face and having a reckoning. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Mm -hmm. that's happened yet in Taiwan. Um, (laughs) Well, it also may not be possible because it's been so long, right? Right, right. That's part of the reason because obviously for such huge, uh, such a huge event um, in the following, uh, and after so long, many of the families, uh, everybody uh, wants differently. You know, uh, people. Some people want the property back. Somebody want their family back, and some funny want to, uh, you know, the trials being trial again. But um, we had never had any apology from anybody, you know. So um, earlier years, and people might be asking uh, apology from the original government, but Taiwan has gone through so much uh, democracy that we have transitioned different governments, parties, and all that already. So whose responsibility is it is to really make apology for this political history event? And then so this part is hard. So that's that's why I think I compare with maybe the Nazis and things like that, you know, same historic period. Uh, many people know who the perpetrators are, you know, or the, who the uh, people behind them are. But uh, in Taiwan, unfortunately, we probably would never know. We kind of know, but, you know, uh, but people probably would not recognize them. And, and so that's that's a difficult part, I guess. Yeah. So we all had to heal by ourselves and then try to, I don't know, maybe try to make sense out of it. Yeah, that, that's a, a little unfortunate part. What do you think that we can learn from the 228 massacre and how has it impacted, number one, the Taiwanese and number two, the Taiwanese diaspora? That's a loaded question because I think <laughs> it depends who you ask. Um, from my perspective, it's really taught me that Taiwan's ability to embrace and accept um, a lot of foreign entities since the beginning of when there started to be documents of Taiwan has helped it to grow and shaped it in so many different ways. I think some of the visitors have 
left us for the better. Um, and some of them have helped us to grow more resilient out of adversity. So if I can say anything, I, I'm always amazed. Taiwan is always able to incorporate and, and resurface in a, in a way that I would not have imagined. Um, as for the diaspora, though, I feel like there might be opportunities for more education Certainly for folks like me who grew up in an ethnic enclave, I grew up in the 626 in Southern California. I did not hear much about this at all until I was already an adult. And so if I, in 626, didn't have the opportunity to learn about this, I can't imagine growing up in other parts of the world not having that community. So I think there are great opportunities. And can you elaborate on what, The 626 reference is? Sure. 626 is an area code for Los Angeles. Um, and there's a certain part called the San Gabriel Valley. And mm. I think it was home to what was called Little Taipei at one point in time or the Beverly Hills of Taiwan kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's really expanded to different parts. If you go there, you might actually feel like you're in Asia, which is what one of my friends who recently visited from Taiwan, he said <laughs> that he felt like he was actually in Asia again. So um, I'm going to say it probably has one of the highest concentrations of Taiwanese Americans, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the other major cities in the States. Like, mm -hmm. We have so many different chapters of um, Taiwanese organizations, and I think in Southern California we have many Taiwanese American or associations. Yeah. Uh, Suan, I know this is a really huge question, but I'll pose the same question to you. Uh, what do you think we can learn from the 228 massacre, and how has it impacted the Taiwanese or the Taiwanese okay, diaspora? I... I will speak from my personal uh, part and then extend it to the Taiwanese or Taiwanese Americans. Um, being a third generation, and I used to think that, you know, people who really like, uh, it, it, I used to think it's, there are only two things, good or bad, right or wrong, you know. Uh, so uh, for 228 events and what happened to my fa uh, family, I always thought, oh, it was those bad people wrong who did wrong thing. 100% without negotiation. So, but after all these years working with them and also being a gerontologist, doing a lot of live review, that's what I've been actively doing since returning to Taiwan 12 years ago. I conducted a few sessions with veterans, with those who came from China, and then they, they lived here, probably not have that much of a good life because all their family members are still in China. And I started to realize that, you know, uh, people who had to forced or willingly to transition to another total different culture or land, um, they really have to learn to think and to be empathized and then to think from others' point of view. So I become very empathetic towards those old veterans and then uh, to know why uh, they, they, they behave like they, they do. You know, sometimes they still think of themselves as Chinese, not Taiwanese at all. Just like when I was in the States, I could see the first generation of the identifying themselves as Taiwanese, not Taiwanese Americans. So I think I, uh, what I learned from this, uh, besides the political and the historical part that really made me uh, learn a lot, I think it's about generational. Sometimes when you make such a big move, I think you really have to examine the deep cultural and 
um, you know, the, 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 the feeling uh, and then try to see from others' point of the other side of view. So I think that's why I think it's important uh, as Taiwan now become more democratized, we probably never have unfailed trials and we'll never have a killing, um, you know, without any reason. But um, now we turn into many media attack, you know, or some kind of uh, bully, uh, emotional bully, uh, because your 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 thinking is just the same, not the same as me, so I can bully you or hustle you and all that. So I think it's still the same. We have to avoid. Uh, how do I say it? Just, you know, just just have to be thinking from others' point of view and not. Uh, fall into this deep hole of like, you know, uh, you, you did something wrong, so you are a wrong person or you are enemy forever kind of <laughs> kind of thinking. So that um, we need to be more open minded and to open minded yeah, and, that's the word. and to see things yeah. from other people's perspective. Um, yeah. I'm curious to know, Suan, since you are a third generation of um, someone who was persecuted uh, as a result of 228, like how does your family react to you doing this work? Um, very interestingly, I think my mother <laughs> is still <laughs> not uh, very acceptive of you know of what I've been doing. Uh, what I think her scar was so deep, and then. Um, need to really heal little by little. Um, my mom think uh, didn't think uh, what I did was enough. You know, I could never really move this gigantic elephant kind of thing. So, but uh, for me, like I expressed earlier, you know, I don't want to have any regrets. Uh, I know mm -hmm. my ability and time is very limited, so mm -hmm. I just wanted to contribute a little and do a little part of me. And then part of it is because through this uh, process, I'm healing myself too. I think. You know, I'm seeing from others' point yes. of view, and I appreciate. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I think I I I benefit a lot. And then, mm -hmm. but the other family just uh, don't think. You know, this is in, this is this is good enough. And but then um, they they do different part. They they use different ways to contribute. Like I have a cousin who's very into writing the history and making mm -hmm. speeches. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. Um, and I had an uncle who did a little documentary uh, film uh, and then had interviews with media. So I think we all are trying to do our little part just different ways, I guess. Is there anything else that you wanted to share about this experience that you had to work with the Tutui Transitional Justice Committee that we haven't covered yet? I'd just like to encourage folks to educate themselves, develop an awareness, and also to share how this happened and how to prevent it. I think we just need to have respectful and open communication with one another, no matter which side of history you fell on. And I think mm -hmm. that's what's really courageous about getting to meet good people like Josephine had introduced me to her good friend Weiwei and really helping me to see that all of us have been affected. And it wasn't just Taiwanese that were scooped up and disappeared sympathizers and, and all of that sort. So I think all of us have been impacted, whether we realize it or not. I'd love for folks just to educate themselves, either through books and readings or simply just go visit. And there are so many ways to get the resources to educate uh, ourselves. And then like Michi say, it's very important because um, I don't think it's stopped um, without being aware and getting to know more about the, the knowledge, 
uh, I think this thing is going to be a big uh, hurdle, a big rock, I guess, actually, uh, prohibiting Taiwan from moving on. Because um, current events, you know, we have uh, sometimes sensitive issue with our neighbors and all that. I think uh, it all deeply down into if we don't know each other and not knowing about our history and be aware of the situation, I think uh, it's hard to move on. So I think I encourage people to do the same thing. Like you both said, you know, being open-minded and being aware and try to see uh, different interpretations from different angles, just not reading from one source. Because we didn't have that chance to have multiple angles. Um, traditionally, it was very sealed and very one angle only, one perspective only. So now uh, there are so many English or Chinese or even different languages, uh, documentary and all that. So those are good sources to learn from. I wanted to thank both of you so much for taking time out of your schedules to talk about your work with 228 survivors through the Transitional Justice Commission. Thank you very much about having, you know, for having us and then doing this session. I think it was also brave of you to do that as well. And bravo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always a pleasure to work with good people. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Michi Fu and Dr. Tsuan Kuo about their work with the Transitional Justice Commission's caring projects that have extended help to the survivors of 228 and their relatives. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by the Taiwan Elite Alliance and the Taiwanese United Fund. The Taiwan Elite Alliance was established in 2000 to promote Taiwanese and Taiwanese American arts and literature and to protect and enhance the human rights, freedom, and democracy of the people in Taiwan. The Taiwanese United Fund is an arts and culture foundation that celebrates the cultural heritages of Taiwanese Americans. Established in 1986, the foundation's mission is to facilitate cultural exchange between the Taiwanese American community and other American cultural communities, hoping to enrich and expand our cultural experiences. If you enjoyed this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.